So we are back in Luke chapter 10 this morning, and we're going to be starting in verse 17. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles and, and put your fingers right there at uh, verse 17. Uh, I wanted to quickly mention uh, how much I enjoyed our fellowship uh, last Sunday at the, at the park. Um, very thankful. It was such a great time. Um, it was not only fun, uh, but it was, was also very encouraging. Uh, and how about the food? Uh, the food was amazing, and uh, I, I can't imagine that today is going to be any less. Um, and, and not to over-spiritualize picnics at the park, um, but seeing the food, seeing the hospitality, seeing you all gathered around, um, it reminded me of the coming feast coming feast that will be hosted by our Savior himself, uh, and that's just a small picture of, of encouragement and fellowship that we will one day see in Christ, fulfilled completely in Christ. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that as we, before we got started and, and how much I really enjoyed that, that time together last week. All right, so last week we kicked, or two weeks ago, we kicked off from Luke chapter 10, finishing several weeks in chapter 9. Uh, and if you remember, Jesus sent out the 72, right? He sent out the 70 disciples to, to go preach and proclaim the kingdom of God, to go before Jesus, right? Jesus' ministry was moving forth, headed toward Jerusalem, and he sent these 72 guys out two by two to proclaim and preach the kingdom of God, right? He sends them out first to pray. Right? You remember, he says, he says, before you even go, before you can even proclaim, pray to the Lord of the harvest that God, the Father, who is the Lord of the harvest, would, would bring and bring about and raise up more laborers to bring in the harvest. He sent them out humble. If you remember, he says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. There's good news, right? being sent out. Like, ooh. He said, take nothing with you, right? No money, no knapsack, no backpack, no sandals. Don't bring anything. God will provide. Don't be, don't be weighed down by those things. He sent them as, sent them with peace. You remember that? Go in peace. Bring peace into the homes to those who will receive you. Preach the, the gospel of, of peace, the good news of the gospel. He gave them power to heal and to cast out demons, which was a, the evidence of the coming of the kingdom of God. And then he sent them in peace. If you remember that, he sent them with peace, but this time he also sent them in peace, meaning trust in the Lord, trust in his sovereignty, that even though you might be rejected, trust in God's sovereignty and that God will judge and that God will work all things out according to his glory and in his timing. When we are rejected for the gospel's sake, we are not rejected because of us, we are rejected because of Christ. And if Christ is rejected, then judgment will come. We see very pointedly there in chapter 10, of the judgment of God being spoken upon certain cities. I, I thought about it for a moment. I, I thought about when I was studying this week, uh, looking back at that text, I thought about how would you like to be those guys that were being sent to those cities? Be like, oh, man, <laughs> my good golly, right? Can I go here? Anybody want to trade? How about I go to this place instead, right? Um, but what these guys were doing, being sent out by Jesus, was a picture of what Jesus has come to do. It's what, it's what we sung back in December. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And that's what these guys are doing. And in our passage today, what we're going to see is these guys have come back. They've come back from their mission, and they are absolutely thrilled. They are beside themselves of what they saw, the things that they did, and the things that they experienced. And they could hardly believe the response that they had in all the villages that they went into. They couldn't believe it. And in our passage, we see how Jesus rejoices with them, with all the reports and all the stories that came from these, these 70 guys, talking about how 
God through the authority and power of Christ did some miraculous things. But Jesus in this text, he does something with these guys, with all the crowd that they're hearing. He redirects them. He rejoices with them what happened. But he also redirects them into something deeper. He, re- re- he redirects them into a deeper joy, a deeper reality that's even far more greater, far more amazing than what they did on the mission field. And as he has done that for them, so he does in redirecting our hearts to delight and rejoice in something that is deeper and far greater. I have an illustration that I like to use when it comes to uh, maturing and growing in Christ and and, and going deeper and delighting in these deeper truths and deeper joys. And and this is just a great time of the year to, to use this illustration because... At this time of the year, as the weather is warming up and the sun's coming out, at least we think the sun's going to come out eventually, and, and things are going to warm up. We know it's hot. Pools are warming up. Pools are opening up. Splash in the Borough is going to be officially opened and, uh, all, you know, all summer. People are going to the beach, um, and, and, and that's just the reality of when it's warming up. But have you ever been to a public pool? Have you all ever been to a public pool? Anybody? Yes? No? Okay. I, um, growing up in Florida, we at least where I lived, they didn't have very many public pools. Um, the few that they were, you kind of stayed away from them. You were kind of afraid of them. You just went to the beach is, is what, what you did. But, but we've been to public pools. We, we like going to Splash in the Borough. We like taking our kids to Splash in the Borough. Pretty, pretty cool place. Lots of slides, lots of pools. The kids love it. We enjoy it. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, and at Splash in the Borough, there's, they have two main pools on one side of the park. And one is a massive Olympic-sized swimming pool where you can do laps. You can uh, dive off a, di- a diving board into like 12 feet of water. I mean, it's a, big, it's a really big pool. Um, the other one, though, right next to it, um, doesn't really get any deeper than like three to four feet. I'm not too sure. And it's maybe, uh, it's maybe a third of the size of the, of the Olympic-sized pool. And the reason why it's there is that it's for the kids. It's a kiddie pool. Right? It's for the, it's for the, the, the kiddie pool. Now, um, now, note to self, the kiddie pool, if you ever go there, is always a little bit warmer than the other pools. And there you go. You know why. Right? I don't think it's because of the sunshine. I think it's because it's the kiddie pool. Now, the kids go in this, this pool because it's a kiddie pool. It's for them to learn to swim. It's for them to have fun. It's for parents to feel okay because it's not as deep. And if they feel like they're drowning, they can just stand right up, and most of them will be okay. Now, if we were at Splash in the Borough, and, and we were walking over to the Olympic-sized pool to go dive in, to go swim, and as we were walking by the kiddie pool, we saw a bunch of kids playing, and we smile, like, oh, kids are playing. But then you look over, and you see a 55-year-old man playing in the kiddie pool. What would you think? Well, we all know what you think. You don't have to say it out loud. Something's not right. Something is, something is off. Why is there a 55-year-old dude swinging, swimming in the kiddie pool? And he's not playing with any kids. He's not playing with his grandkids. He was there with his grandkids or there with maybe a child or, you know, whatever it may be. We would be pretty suspicious. And if, and if the guy, look, you know, normal things look, we would probably maybe even call the security. Because 55-year-old dude should not be playing in the pee pool. Right? That's just, that's just the way it is. Something is, is, is not right because as adults, as 50, 55-year-old people, we are meant to go into the deep end. We're meant to go play in the big pools. That's why the big pools was, was made for us. And we should always be striving to swim deeper because at the deeper pools, as kids grow up, they begin to realize that the slides in the deeper pools are actually more fun. There's a lot more joy that's, that's meant for them there. We're not meant to stay in the shallow end, but we're meant to grow up. And I think this is one of the greatest challenges in our time as the church, that Christians are just not growing up. They're not maturing. They're delighting in swimming in the, in the, in the kiddie pool, which is fine for a time, but after a while, when you're not maturing and you're not delighting in the deeper joys of, of the gospel, then something just doesn't look right. We're meant to enjoy deeper things. Instead, we become so easily content with the shallow and the small and the lesser and the warmer pool. Ooh, that just gives me the urge just thinking about it. 
Good things, yes, the kiddie pool. It has a place. But Jesus has given us something deeper to feast on, to swim in. J.C. Ryle speaks of those things that keep us from seeing the deeper joys of being a Christian. He says, Nothing so blinds the eyes of our souls to the beauty of the gospel as the vain, delusive idea that we are not so ignorant and wicked as some and that we have got a character which will bear inspection. But happy is the man who has learned to feel that he is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. To see that we are bad is the first step towards being really good. To feel that we are ignorant is the first beginning to all saving knowledge. Did you catch what the great bishop J.C. Ryle said? Did you catch that? We're so quick in our ignorant condition to be content of thinking so highly of ourselves. But happy is the man who knows their condition before God. Deep and growing and joyful is the man who understands that they are poor, naked, and blind and needy of God's grace. And this is why we need such a reminder from God's grace and his word this morning. And, and this is what Jesus is doing in, his past, in this passage for his disciples and through the, the inspiration of the word of God. It's, it's doing for us that we are being reminded what we really rejoice in, what we really grow in, and that is his grace. Because it is only by grace that our joy will deepen. Let's look at our, let's look at our text now. I know you've been there for a while now. But look at verse 17. Then the 72 returned with joy. J-O-Y, down in my heart, deep, deep down in my heart. Jesus put it there, nothing can just... Who remembers that song? Thank you, Ben. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they're ecstatic. Look what they're coming back and saying. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions in all, all, over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children? Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verse 23. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see, to hear his holy, inspired, inerrant word to his glory, and for our joy. Amen. So Jesus speaks three times in this passage. He speaks three times, and every time he speaks, it's going to be one of my points in, in, in the sermon this morning. Um, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and jump right in. The first one, in verses 17 through 20, is we see rejoicing grace. We see rejoicing grace. What are some of the things that you rejoice in. A couple weeks ago, several of you had the joy of celebrating graduating college. And families, let's up and go our family this morning, dropping water. And, and families rejoicing with their students, now adults. And this past weekend, 
We had more students graduate from, from high school, and there was much joy and excitement and rejoicing and partying and enjoying the company of one another and celebrating graduation. Last Sunday, I got to rejoice in watching a Braves game. And not only watching the Braves game, but I got to watch them beat the Marlins coming back from six to nothing in the bottom of the ninth. They came up by six, six runs. I rejoiced just a little bit. My wife might remember that. Well-known 18th century pastor from England, John Newton, who we know him best for writing the hymn Amazing Grace, was a man, was an amazing pastor, wonderful preacher, wonderful writer, but he was also a man who was very well known for being, and I wrote this very specific, I wrote, being fantastically enamored with his wife, Polly. He loved and adored his wife, Polly, deeply. And, and it showed. He was not afraid to make it known. He was not afraid to, to write about that and tell people how much he loved his wife. In fact, he was so keen on the depth of how much he loved Polly that, that he even debated in his own heart, and even with William Wilberforce, which he was really good friends with, he debated with him, and brother, I, I might have a struggle with idolatry with how much I, I love my wife. In fact, he even published a, a book about, of their letters that they wrote to one another as he traveled. And, and people got mad at him for writing that book. Actually, Christian husbands got mad at him because they thought that it was going to make them look bad. Brothers, that should be our struggle too, huh? Now, Polly, now this is part of the perplexing idea of why people didn't understand this. And, and, and please excuse me and the way I have to speak about this, but Polly wasn't known for her fetching beauty. She wasn't, very, wasn't known for her intellect as well. And so people were like, what? what's really drawing here? And after she passed away, John Newton addressed this concern again with his friend William Wilberforce, and this is what he said. He said, some women are like a pineapple. Not the one out of the can, but you know the pineapple. He said, what they are cannot be appreciated on the seeing but in the experiencing. Newton experienced Polly. Newton loved Polly. What do you rejoice in? How deep are the things that you rejoice in? When the 72 disciples came back from their mission, they returned overjoyed, rejoicing in what they experienced and the things that they were able to do, everywhere they went, demons were, were obeying them and fleeing from them, and they were casting them out. They were, their minds were just blown by all that happened. They couldn't believe all that was happen, happening. And this just wasn't from their perspective. They didn't come back with this rose-colored glasses idea. Jesus rejoiced with them. Jesus agreed with them and celebrated with them because look at what he says in verse 18. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. This is Jesus rejoicing with them because all the things that they did and they saw were only a foretaste of what was to come. And Jesus is rejoicing. He said, the kingdom of God is not just coming, it is here. And it's coming. Wait till after Pentecost, boys. It's getting good. No more thousands of years of mystery and prophecy and darkness. But now you will be led into marvelous light. And when Jesus is saying this about Satan falling from heaven, this is what he means. He says, he says he's basically saying, now it begins. Now it begins. The kingdom has come. My kingdom is growing. Light is breaking forth. Winter has been broken. And spring is coming. I don't know if you're a fan of C.S. Lewis, but in his children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, after the winter's long curse was broken, the beaver says, Aslan is on the move. And that's what Jesus is saying. Darkness is diminishing. Light is here. And the funny thing is, 
it's not just the Son of God who's doing it. It's unnamed 72 disciples. Nobody's. Nobody's that, that Jesus is using and bringing in the kingdom of God and showing the realities of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is just excited. He is excited. And I think he's even more excited because he knows what's really going on. But Jesus redirects these guys, doesn't he? You see there in verse 20, he, he re- redirects these guys. And it's kind of like in the middle of the party, like, guys, 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 I know this is great. I know this is amazing, but it gets better. It gets better. Let me tell you. Let me show you. Verse 20, he says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's greater than casting out demons and healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom of God? Brother and sister, it is that your name is written in heaven rejoicing in God's saving grace. Yes, God has given us many wonderful gifts and talents and spiritual gifts in this life, and it is very good for us to acknowledge them and recognize and and remember that they are gifts from God. Every good and perfect gift has come from the Father. And we rejoice in that. But what is underneath all that that we rejoice in even more beyond the work of God in our midst is what Jesus is pointing us to. And what is very much deeper is his saving grace. These are great things, these great miracles, but rejoice even more, brothers and sisters, that you have been converted. That is a greater miracle, that you have been converted, that you have been saved. Rejoice that your names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life and rejoice that your name is written in heaven. The casting out of demons is amazing. What's quite more amazing is His grace toward you and salvation. And Jesus is showing us this is how you go deeper. I want to show you, brothers, how to deepen your joy. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Oh, we must never lose the awe of our salvation in Christ. Let me turn it another direction. Jesus rejoiced in these conversions. He rejoiced as the kingdom of God was, was, was being made manifest. Do you rejoice in the conversion of others? Do you long to see the conversions of others? Do you pray, oh God, We desire for your churches to be full, that they all may sing and proclaim of Christ. Do you long to see others come from darkness to light? Do you pray that God would bring about conversions in our church through his people? Do you have no greater joy in this life than to see others saved? If this is what our Savior rejoices in, if this is what he delights in, then maybe his people should rejoice and delight in the same. I think if we were to ask that question to us, to Sovereign Grace Church, I think our answer would be yes. We would be so excited. We would rejoice. But I think it should be more. Can it be more? It can always be more. Let's rejoice in our salvation. Rejoice in the grace of God that has been given toward us. Let's rejoice in in salvation that has been given to us in Christ. But let's also rejoice and pray and plead for salvation of others. My second point this morning, I call it humbling grace. But if you read the text, verses 21 through 22, I also think you can call this point Sovereign grace. Because sovereign grace is a humbling grace. It's a grace that humbles us. And we see Jesus praying, right? He he prays. And look what he's praying. Verse 21. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. Do you see what 
You see what we're seeing? Jesus' prayer? Let's, let's break this down for a, a moment. Our, our Bibles, I know, like to separate these two passages, but they're really meant together. So as the, the party is taking place, as the party, Jesus is, is overjoyed and rejoicing, and, and he just begins to pray just in his mind, thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for what you are doing. So not an hour later, not days later, not next month, but the same hour. He rejoices in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. To His Father. To His Father. Who has done amazing things in the midst and continues to do. Did you know that this is the only passage in all the Gospels that we see where it says that Jesus rejoiced. Jesus is often moved with pity. He's often moved with compassion and, and suddenness and even righteous anger. But here Jesus rejoices. And that's very significant this morning because we need to see what Jesus is rejoicing in. He's rejoicing in sovereign grace. He's rejoicing in God's sovereign grace. He thanks his Father first. Look what he thanks his Father for first. Thank you for hiding these truths. Thank you for hiding the truths of the kingdom of God to those who consider themselves to be wise in their understanding those who are popular, those who are cool, the kings, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the celebrities, we get the point. That is not a popular prayer, is it? Jesus praying that God has sovereignly hidden the gospel from some. Before we get upset and we say, that's not fair, let's continue to unpack this. Now, Jesus is not just talking about secular academics and brainiacs and things like that. But I think Jesus is referring to those who they know in Judaism, the, 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 the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, or we can also say those who are in the church in such the same way, who depend only upon their moral support, uh, superiority, their moral uprightness, and they trust only in their knowledge, and that all of those things give them more of a spiritual advantage than others. And those who, who in their works or even in their words are attempting to put God in their debt. Knowledge of Scripture is a good thing, but the problem is that many fall into learned ignorance. Learned ignorance. And the reality is self-righteous morally superior people who are in their hearts, they, they don't need the gospel. They don't need it. They don't need forgiveness because of for what? I've, I've done this. God, look what I have done. Look what I have brought. Look what I have built. Look at the things that I can do. They don't need grace. So Jesus first thanks the Father for hiding the word of God Secondly, he thanks the Father for revealing the good news. Now, brothers and sisters, that's grace. God does not owe us any revelation. The only thing that we deserve is just damnation. And yet God in his Sovereign grace has revealed the good news, not to everyone. But what does he say? To little children. Now, there wasn't third graders running around in this passage. There were disciples. Adult men, grown, grown men, 72 and maybe 12 more. But isn't this how... God has pretty much done everything throughout the Bible. And he calls 
little children. Rarely have we ever seen God take someone who is already powerful and mighty and, and, and redeem them in such a way. Rarely do we see that. A lot of times he's taking the powerful and mighty and he's using them to judge his people. Or he's using them to, to, to humble them or to judge the nations. There's a few. There's a few out there. And he calls those that he uses and those whom he calls little children. Why? Children are wonderful. They're loud. They can be disruptive in church services, I know. And they're mine. I'm sorry. But children are wonderful. We love our children. We care for our children. We nurture our children. We teach them. We discipline them. We provide for them. But they're called children for a reason. They're called children for a reason. Because I know when I was a child, I was a moron. Hints of it are still there. I was a moron. And I, and I did dumb things. And I needed to be led. I needed to be taught. And I, I pretty much had to learn everything the hard way. Did anybody have a kid like that? You had to learn everything. I had to learn everything the hard way. And why? Because I was a child. And this is what the Bible says, what God does in calling and using sinners. Using sinners who are completely undeserved. I mean, examples. Abraham. Abraham tried to sell his wife to save his own skin. David was a murderer and an adulteress. Moses was a murderer. Elijah struggled with depression. The same goes for, for these guys. They were children, fishermen, tax collectors, farmers, zealots. And there was a reason why they were. They were simpleton men. There were people that others looked down on. You know, if we were to plan this whole thing too, we wouldn't have picked them. We would have picked the celebrities and the wealthy and the powerful. But not the Lord. The gospel is revealed to the humble, to little children. If, if you are in Christ this morning, put yourself there. Put yourself there hearing these words of Jesus as one of those little children that Jesus is thanking the Father for. Can you do that? That he has given you the faith to believe and to respond in faith and repentance. Because as it says, for such was his gracious will for you to do so. And no no one knows the Father except anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. He did that for you. And the same theology that Jesus is giving us here is it flows throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul unpacks it completely in, in his, uh, his letter to the church in Ephesus. If you turn over, you can turn over with me real quick. I'm just going to read a few things from there. Ephesians chapter 2. We love turning to Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins once we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that now at work and the sons of obedience. We were wicked, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Bad, 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 bad. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which, which he loved us, even when we were dead in, our trans, dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the coming ages he may show his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own. Nothing you did. You were dead. The corpse at the bottom of the ocean. You were dead. Not of your own doing. It was a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are His workmanship created in the Christ Jesus. 
The same theology that Jesus prayed to his father, Paul, unpacks for us right there in Ephesians chapter 2. The theology of salvation, how it works. And you know what it drives him to? What this humble grace drives us to? It drives us to a doxology of praise. You turn back to chapter 1. Turning back to chapter 1, that's what Paul's doing. He's praising God. He's blessing God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. What humbles us? What gives us deep joy? Sovereign grace. What produces a doxology of praise? Sovereign grace. What humbles us? Turn back to chapter 2 in Ephesians, and I'll show you again. Verse 11, remember, remember, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at times separated from Christ. You were dead. You were unable to come. You were a Gentile. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God a world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How humbling is that? Look down at verse 19. Then, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, how could Paul take Gentiles who were alienated from the promises of the Old Testament? How can Paul rightfully proclaim that over the Gentile church? Sovereign grace. Humbling. How kind, how good of our God to do such things to such undeserved people through such little children. The outcome of salvation by God is never for the conceited or the arrogant, but always given to us by humility. Brothers and sisters, we have so much to be thankful for. God has given us so much and has shown himself to, to be so faithful and so good and so kind to us over these past two and a half years in the planting of this church. But does that make us want to look in the mirror and clap our hands for ourselves? No. What all those blessings and gifts and God's grace that he has given us should lead us to say and to pray is this. Lord, I don't know why you have chosen to preserve the gospel here. But I do know this. It is not because we deserve it. For whatever reason you've chosen to preserve the gospel light in this congregation, then that means, Lord, we need to say, thank you, we don't deserve this, and we need to say, to whom much is given, much is required. How often, brothers and sisters, do you meditate and think about the joy-inducing sovereign grace of God? We pray like Jesus prayed, rejoicing in his sovereign grace. Verse 23 and 24 gets us to our next point, the third statement of Jesus. After his prayer to the Father, he now turns to his disciples, and I think what he is showing us here is that we are to rejoice in expanding grace. Expanding grace. Verse 23, Jesus says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do you hear what he's saying to his disciples? Do you see how astonishing it is what, what Jesus is saying? Jesus is telling them of the amazing privilege that they have to see and to hear the gospel. Those that have come before them have didn't get to see nowhere near and hear nowhere near what they 
wanted to hear and see. What you guys get to see and hear, what you get to receive spiritually is what Moses and Abraham and the prophets only knew in small pieces and promises. But you get far more, far more in seeing and hearing the revelation of God. The kingdom of God has come and the grace of God through the word of God is expanding and growing as God is revealing himself. As he is revealing himself through his son and to his people whose names were written in heaven. The New Testament speaks of this grace expanding more and, and more. And I think the, one of the neatest examples is look at the difference between the disciples of the, the Gospels and the disciples of Acts chapter 2. Actually, you just go one chapter over to Acts chapter 1. Scared, frightened, unknowing. Two, empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the boldness of the gospel where the educated, wise, and understanding looked at these guys and said, who are these dudes speaking this way? They're uneducated fishermen. Look at the difference. It's expanding the, the, as the kingdom of God is growing. It's growing. And what we have now, brothers and sisters, in the word of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is far better than the titans of the Old Testament had. I even tested this point earlier in the week, Wednesday. I was meditating on this all day Wednesday and thinking about it. And so how can I test this point? So I looked at my three-year-old. And I said, Lydia, you know the one who's screaming out there right now? I said, Lydia, who is Jesus? And without skipping a beat. I mean, yeah, Lydia, I didn't even think she looked at me. She was like, God! Now, as amazing that is, because she's three years old and she knows the, the answer to that, to that question. And that's a pretty easy question for us. We don't, we don't even struggle with this. But brothers and sisters, did you know Isaiah had no clue about that? Elijah had no clue. David had no clue. The things that we know, that we have taken for, for granted. It's such a privilege that even our preschoolers know that even our preschoolers know that Jesus is God. What a privilege that we have as the grace of God is expanding amongst us and in us and, and through us. It's what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel longed to say, desired to say. What Lydia said they just yearn to see it. Oh, beloved church of God, what a privilege. What grace we have in the word of God that's being revealed to us as the Holy Spirit is revealing it to us. And his grace is expanding in us. And grace isn't just something that is expanded over time in the kingdom of God, but it's also expanding in each and every one of our hearts and every one of our lives. Paul taps into this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He, says, he said, and we all, with unveiled faces, right, because it's been revealed to us, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. And what are we doing? We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You see how it's expanding? It's expanding from one degree to another. But this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When I started college, I was pretty young, still a moron. And I went to a, um, a little Baptist college. And at this, uh, at this uh, Baptist college, uh, I saw some things I never experienced before. Um, when I first got there and um, you know, I started noticing these people were like playing guitars and singing worship songs at night, and I was like, "What the heck are these weirdos doing?" Right? And I began to think to myself, "Well, that looks like a that that looks like some you know really heartfelt and meaningful." And so I began to watch and observe, and, and I began to learn, you know, kind of the things that they were doing. Okay, so I raise my hands, and that makes me okay. Oh, close my eyes too. Okay, if I do that, I can't read the words. That means I got to memorize these things. And so I'm singing, and I'm learning how to do all these things. And, and in college, I, I kind of learned how to, to be more heartfelt and, and, and more emotional, and, and not in a holy roller wacko way, but in a, like a Baptist student way, white student way, right? And, and that's just the way it was. 
right? And it was songs like, I can only imagine, when it was when it, way back in the day when it was like pummeled on the radio and stuff like that, and, and Lord, I lift your name on high. You guys remember that one? That one, thank God it's gone by the wayside, uh, and several others. Um, and, and then we are singing and all these things that I learned. But as I, I, as I begin to mature, mature, you know, I think mentally, um, less moronic and more adultic, is that a word? more like an adult, how about that, adulthood, as I begin to mature. And, and I'm not putting those things down, like the way that people worship. I'm not putting that down at all. Sometimes I, I still get caught up, and I'll, I'll close my eyes sometimes too. I always forget the words, though. But as I begin to mature, God was grounding me in his grace. He was grounding me in the gospel. And several things happened among those years that begin to, that were deepening me and deepening my, my joy in his grace in, in ways that I never had even experienced when I was learning how to worship like that. In fact, I, I can point to a moment that after I graduated, it wasn't short after, we moved, Christina and I, we moved to Cincinnati, and I was doing collegiate ministry at the University of Cincinnati, and I was at their college worship time, student service, and, and I was standing in the back of the room, and I was watching them do the very same things that I did with just newer and better songs, actually, and, and doing the same things, raising and singing, and I was, th- I was happy. You know, and I stood there with, with my, uh, I didn't have the body language that looked like I was happy, but I stood there with my, my arms crossed, and I had my Bible like this, and I just remember smiling, thinking about the words. I have no clue what the, what the song was, but just thinking and smiling at the words because I was just staggered by God's justifying grace over such a sinner. And I had never thought that way before. In fact, now it just makes people so thankful. I never had thought that way before. And I'm like, why would this be? because of God was grounding me into a deeper, richer, fervent joy of his grace that he has saved me over his sovereign grace deeply saving me. And what was happening? His grace was expanding in my life. It was just like right there I hit one degree up bloop, in my life. We are meant to expand in our lives of the grace of, of God. And at that day, it became a reality. It's such a reality, I still remember that. It's vivid, very vivid in my mind. The grace of God is always expanding, not just in me, but also in you, to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We were meant for this. You were meant to grow in this grace, brothers and sisters. This is the deep root of a Christian's joy. This is the deep root of the Christian's joy. Putting all down to it is the sovereign grace of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. Was blind, but now I see. John Newton, again, full circle. It's simple. The, same, the thing that we rejoice in is simple that even little children can comprehend. But it's a completely inexhaustible knowledge and truth and joy that will always satisfy your soul with deep joy. We'll never get to the bottom of it. Not even heaven. We will never get to the bottom of God's sovereign grace. Here's how I want to close this morning. I want to close by asking one simple question and just kind of bringing it together and how this also applies to us. Can you imagine... And I, that may be the wrong word. Can you, can you imagine, can you envision being among a church where others around you, including you yourself, are growing together, maturing together in God's grace? That it's not just expanding in the few, the few people that are put into the corner, but a grace that is expanding in the whole church. Can you imagine that? that our faith is increasing and expanding in His grace. Can you see how humbling that grace is? How humble we would in walking with one another? Not a a humility that beats us up and leaves us in an alley, but a grace that leads us into deeper, richer joy. Can you imagine singing together of that grace? 
Can you imagine our our grace-giving relationships with one another and how we care for one another, how we disciple one another, how we love one another because grace is driving us? And if I can be so bold, brothers and sisters, can you imagine how much happier you will be? I've heard it said by others that the meanest and most unhappiest people you've ever met are in church. I don't know about other churches, but I don't think that's the case here. But let us be marked with a deepening joy, growing in grace. A grace that doesn't let us, doesn't let us fall into sin. Doesn't let us give in to, to, to sin, but we think deeply of our union with Christ that leads us to deep joy. And when we're facing trials and sufferings, we rejoice in what Jesus has already accomplished for us on the cross and knowing and believing that this life isn't it. And forgiving one another when we have been sinned against, when we have been offended. How could we not forgive? and yet with the same tongue rejoice in sovereign grace. You can't. We grow in it. We are enriched by it. It drives us to pray. It drives us to be in the word of God. There's so many areas that we can can look at and we can see how it can deepen us and how we can apply it. Come up with some of your own. Come up with a list. How does God's sovereign grace apply? How does God's sovereign grace stir in my life to produce joy? And what does it move me to do? Is your joy shallow this morning? Are you swimming in the shallow end of the kiddie pool? Let me encourage you that if you're still swimming in this kiddie pool, don't just go jump in the big pool. Find someone that is swimming in the big pool and ask them to show you how to swim. Ask them to show you how to swim. Show me. Doesn't that take humility? Humbling grace. Maybe your joy has already been deepening in in the richness of God's grace. Then thank Him this morning. Thank Him for its expanding grace in your life. Rejoice in His good work. And then pray for others that you may encourage them in God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for your word. We pray that you would lead us now in our time of response. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.